0: This morning, I have the privilege of concluding a series that we've been in, a series that we've called Word, beginning with the Bible. And uh, our dream, our prayer in this series has been that each one of us would take the next step in what it looks like for us to learn and love And live the word of God. I don't know where you were as far as the Bible was concerned six months ago. But our hope is that you would take just that next step in the direction of loving it more and living it out a little bit more through this series and um, this morning we get to uh, conclude the series and as we do I, I want to continue a theme that we started last week and last week we said that it matters not just that you read the Bible it matters how you read the Bible It matters how you read the Bible. Because if you get the wrong how, you may end up at the wrong where when it comes to the Bible. If we don't read the Bible um, in ways that it was designed to be read, we are going to end up in places it was not designed to take us. And so last week we looked at a couple of uh, practical principles. One thing we saw is that context is king. When you're reading the Bible, it matters what the context is. What did it mean to the people it was originally written to? in that particular context what does it mean and light up some of the other things that are being said around it what does it mean in light of some of the other passages in scripture that speak about the same theme because if you just text jack and you pull out a soundbite from one verse and you make it your life verse and you tattoo it to the back of your neck but it's out of context You may end up thinking it means something it doesn't, and it may possibly lead you to a place it was not designed to lead you. Context is king. We saw last week that tone is key. The tone of a verse or a text of scripture, it really matters. It really matters. Um, I know this because of how many conversational misses my wife and I have over text. Like, what did you say? What's a thumbs up? Like you couldn't say something like a full sentence, a thumbs up. I feel, you know, this, that, and this happens all the time at work. Somebody sent you an email. And so you read it, but you missed the tone with which it was written. No, you, you missed, you know, whether the person was speaking about past tense or future tense. The same is true with the Bible. Tone matters. Was this a past tense? Was it a verb? Uh, was it a noun? Was it a command? Was it a suggestion? Um, what, what was it? And so. We want to read the Bible really well because how you read the Bible matters. Um, this week, as we conclude, I wanted us to zone in on another practical principle when it comes to reading the Bible. And uh, again, this week is going to feel a little more teachy than preachy as we take practical steps in how we engage uh, the Bible. Um, How we engage the Bible. In fact, this morning, we may take a step more in the direction of why we engage the Bible. But the point is, we want to give some practical steps when it comes to engaging the Word of God. If you have a copy of the Bible, we are going to be in John chapter 5. John chapter 5. If you don't have a copy, the verses will appear on the screen. Uh, If you are engaging us um, remotely, the verses will appear on the screen there as well. Um, And you can follow along that way. John chapter 5, we are going to start reading at verse number 39. Verse 39. Now, to give you a little context, uh, in this section of scripture, Jesus is having a pretty tense and a very tragic conversation with some of the most powerful religious authorities in his day. He's having a conversation with some of the Biblical experts of his time. These were the people who had doctorate, PhDs. And all kinds of fancy letters. At the end of their name. Because of how expertly they understood the word of God. And they're having this conversation with Jesus. Around Jesus' identity. And when I say it was a tense conversation. I, I mean this conversation would actually trigger in them. The desire to have Jesus killed. Which they would eventually succeed at. A little bit down the path, But it's in this context of scripture that Jesus teaches us a principle about studying the Bible that we cannot afford to miss as we wrap this series this morning. John chapter 5 verse number 39. Um, here's what it says. Um, you, talking to the religious leaders... You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Man, we talked about this a little bit last week, but yet here is this theme showing up again in this particular text of scripture. And that is this. We are obsessed with life. What is true about us was true about the religious authorities that Jesus is talking to in his day. We are obsessed with life. Meaning we are desperately consumed desperately deeply consumed with finding or experiencing that version of life that will quench the deep longing for soul satisfaction in us we are obsessed with life and we will chase after whatever ever promises to deliver that sense of fullness, that sense of soul satisfaction in us. Matter of fact, everything you do is driven by this obsession to taste life in its fullness and experience some sense of soul satisfaction. We are obsessed with life as was true with these religious leaders in Jesus Day. Um, It's been about 10 years um, since a friend pointed me to an article in the business magazine Fast Company, uh, an article um, that is just tenderly titled Change or Die. Um, And the article opens with a very simple question, and the question is this If you had the choice to make a few behavioral changes, in your life. Or else. Die. What would you choose? i ah, roll my ice just like you would. That's a dumb question. We're talking about my life here. Of course I would make a few changes. I don't want to die. Change or die. I'm going to change. Thank you very much. Except. You would be wrong. At least 90% of us. Would be wrong about that. This article went on to talk about the the healthcare industry. A 1.8 trillion dollar a year industry in the US alone. And it focused in particular on a a group of people. Whose heart conditions had become so severe. That they required invasive life-saving surgery. For 600,000 people a year. Heart situations got so bad that it required bypass surgery. Ugh. Brutal, gruesome experience. Invasive. I'm talking like rib cracking, like blood spurting surgery. Um, Just not awesome. And it can cost in excess of a hundred thousand dollars a crack if you get what i'm saying for about 1.3 million people their heart situation gets so bad that they require angioplasties and and all kinds of other artificial mechanisms installed in their cavities to help keep them alive Ah. um The expense of all of that and the brutal experience of going through all of life-saving invasive surgery was not the point of the article. The point of the article is actually this, that after this gruesome experience and after spending your life savings on this surgical procedure to save your life, it says that these patients would go and they would see their doctor and they would do what you would expect. They would fall on the ground on their knees and they would thank the doctor. Thank you so much for saving my life. Oh man, I wouldn't be here without you, sir. I'm going to name my grandkids after you, blah, blah, blah. The doctor's like, "Ah, oh, you're welcome, whatever. You paid for my house in Cabo. And then the doctor would say to the patients, listen, real talk. You have to make some changes. To the way that you're living. Otherwise you are going to die. You got to make some simple changes. Man you got to stop smoking. Like a little exercise. Every now and then. A couple of dietary adjustments. You've got to make some changes. Otherwise you are going to die. And here they are in simple list form. The crazy thing. Nine out of ten people. Who just stared death in the face. And just experienced $100,000 invasive life-saving surgery. Heard the doctor. Went back and did the exact same things that almost cost them their lives. Nine out of ten people. 90%. Rub shoulders with death. Go back and continue to do the very things that almost killed them. The very things that got them. In that difficult situation. Which raises the obvious question. right? What would possess somebody who just stared death in the cornea. To go back and continue to do the very things they knew would likely kill them. And the answer is really simple. Because the things that almost killed them. Were also the things that made them feel. Most alive. Because eventually the thought of dying. Was not too bad an alternative. When held up against a life just barely lived. They went back to the things that almost killed them. Because those were also the things. That made them feel most Alive, we are obsessed with life, we are obsessed with the things that will introduce a sense of soul satisfaction, and boy. We will chase whatever we believe and cling to whatever we believe promises to introduce that into our experience even if it kills us. We are obsessed with life. And I did not say we're obsessed with staying alive. We're obsessed with feeling alive. Having that sense of soul satisfying life. We're crazy about it. Come on, I mean... Let's be honest in church. um, Isn't that why you keep doing the same crazy stuff that you know is jeopardizing your health? The doctor has told you about your cholesterol. And how come you will not stop lathering that there salted butter on your cereal? And coffee or wherever else you can find to put it. You know what it's doing to you. But you will not put the siggies down. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Isn't that what? You know this thing has every possibility of blowing up your marriage in its entirety. But you're like, man, I just have to be a little bit more careful now. Why? Because this is the thing that promises to to, to make you feel most alive. And you are willing to risk it all on account of whatever that thing happens to be. Come on, isn't that why you promise yourself never again every morning after you do that thing? Never again. And then you run back to the same thing. And you know it could destroy your career. You know it could blow up your fat. You know it. But you won't stop. Why not change? Just change. We are obsessed with feeling fully alive. We are obsessed with anything that even hints at satisfying the deep craving in my soul. I'll chase it and I will cling to it. That was true for the religious leaders in Jesus' day. The crazy thing though, <laughs> the crazy thing is, is these religious folk, they, they didn't believe that they would find this sense of soul satisfying life like, you know, in parties or in Twinkies or If they got married someday, then their souls would finally feel alive. Now, they didn't think they would find it at the bottom of a wine bottle. This religious group was obsessed with feeling fully alive. And they were convinced that they would find it in the pages of the Bible. I mean, read it again, but see for yourself. John chapter three, verse 39. Jesus said, you study the scriptures diligently, which is fantastic. And you do that because you think that in them, you have eternal life. You have overflowing life. You have this full experience, soul satisfying life. These are, Jesus says, the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So satisfying, overflowing life. Y'all are obsessed with life. The problem is that you keep going to the wrong place. To find it. And in your case. It's the Bible. And Jesus is standing there saying. I'm telling you. If you want it. If you want soul satisfying. If you want overflowing life. Come get it. But come and get it from me. Okay, time out. Um, We are going to go where I I would love for us to go. But I, I can't be the only one who could have really used this growing up in the context of the church. For those of you who grew up in the context of the church. I read this again and I'm like, how was I not told this as a teenager in particular? How was I not told this because I, I never growing up and in my teenage years in particular, I never conceived of What God's response to my obsession for life was. My longing to experience something that would feel like it was satisfying to the soul. I'm I'm crazy Lord. I'm, I'm obsessed with it. And I want to experiment with anything that I believe will make me feel fully alive. I want to try anything. I will rebel. I will break laws. Whatever. I just want to experience something that makes me feel alive. I am obsessed with feeling alive. I never would have conceived of what God's response to that longing would be. And yet it appears his response is Ditto. Um, same same. Same same. I actually also want you to experience soul satisfying, all consuming life. I'm telling you, I missed that completely. John chapter 10, verse 10. I love the words of Jesus. He says, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy, to take from you while promising to satisfy. I have come, Jesus says, that they may have, there it is again, life and have it to the full. Another version says, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Come on, KJV, come on. I have come that they were experience more life than their souls could possibly handle is what jesus is saying in this passage of scripture you want the life so do i i have actually come to this world so your souls would overflow with more life than they know what to do with not when you get to heaven by the way right now I don't know if you knew this, but eternal life in the Bible is not about living after you die. It's actually about life so full and free, so rich and running over. It's about life so entirely consuming that it requires forever for us to fully enjoy it. And even that won't be enough. So forever is just going to go on and on and on And on. Life abundant. God in the person of Jesus says y'all are crazy consumed. With experiencing fullness of life. I want the exact same thing. For you. In fact, I want life for your souls more than you could possibly want it. I mean, come on. Isn't that the gospel? That's the gospel. Jesus saying, I am so passionately concerned about you living fully that I'm willing to change outfits and die. Talk about change and die. I'm willing to die so y'all can experience the fullest version of life. Come on. I don't know if you knew Jesus is committed to the very thing you are obsessed with. Over. So satisfying life. Woo. I wish somebody would have told me this. Which makes it such a delight to come and tell some of y'all this right now. The devil is a liar. He is going to convince you. Jesus doesn't want you to be happy. Matter of fact, if you want to experience life in his most meaningful, most consuming way, you've got to get as far away from those ridiculous rules and rituals and regulations that Jesus holds over you and run free, which is what I believe that, that lie. And I went crazy as a teenager trying to find a life in every crazy place. And yet you come to the Bible and you read it over. And Jesus is like, no, that's a lie. I am more committed to you experiencing fullness of life than you are. Because I am willing to do for your life what you would never do for yourself. Devil is a liar. I'm so happy to say that. If you want real satisfaction, get away from Jesus. And go party like it's 19 pre-COVID or whatever. (laughs) There is no one more concerned or committed to your soul's full experience of life than Jesus. I just wanted to put that out into the atmosphere. Jesus is for your fullness. Jesus tells these religious leaders, I know you're obsessed with life. And I am holding life out to you. Come get some. Come get some. But they refuse to take it. That's what makes this story so tragic. They refuse to take it. Um, see, because the problem, again, what I wish I knew... Man, if I could have a conversation with my 14, 15-year-old self, what I wish I knew. The problem is not that God disagrees with us about what we most deeply long for. He does not The problem is that we disbelieve him when he tells us where to find what we long for. The problem is not that you want it. It's where you try and find it. Right? And so we, our lives are these well-worn paths as we insist on running to all the wrong places to get a hit of all the wrong fixes even though those things are so often just stealing and killing and destroying us. Again, for this religious group, they're convinced they're going to find it in the Bible. And so they wear these paths of studying the Bible, coming back to the Bible over and over and over and over and over again. Because if I can master the Bible, then maybe I can experience that deep sense of soul satisfaction. And Jesus... Has a conversation with them and he says, hey, guess what? This whole time, you've been looking for a person. This whole time, you've been looking for a person. Because life is not found in the pages of the Bible. Life is found in the person standing in front of. It's in this moment that Jesus introduces this principle that we cannot afford to miss when it comes to how we study the Bible. Look again, John chapter 5 verse 39. It says, you study the scriptures diligently just like he parties and just like she spends time on dating apps. And just like he drinks, because you think that in them you have eternal life, you have meaningful life, you have soul-satisfying life. And then Jesus says, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life oh jesus is teaching them now not just that you continue to go to the wrong place but he teaches us something about how to study the scripture how to approach the word of god and here's the principle i just we have to see before we walk out of this series and here's the principle The Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus. The Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus from start to finish. This book is designed to reveal and point us to the person of Jesus in whom soul satisfying life is ultimately found. It's about the person of Jesus. Second part of John chapter 30, chapter five, verse 39. These, Jesus says, are the very scriptures that testify about me. The Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus. I'm just warning you now so you know ahead of time. I'm going to say that a few more times in the last few minutes before we wrap. The Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus. By the way, this principle should not surprise us on account of the fact that everything... Is ultimately about the person of Jesus. I love the way that's captured by Paul. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. This is what it says. He. Jesus. Is the head of the body. The church. That's us. We show up in here you guys. Um, He Jesus is the beginning. And the firstborn from among the dead. So that in say that word. Everything. He Jesus. Might have. The supremacy. Everything is ultimately about Jesus. It should not surprise us that the Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus Christ. One author said it so cool. He said the written word ultimately exists to point us to the living word. Who is a person with a name Jesus, because the Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not encouraging you to get everything about the Bible wrong. I'm not. If I did, Jeff Gill would meet me, tackle me outside this building. I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting this. If you get everything wrong, get that right about this book. It is ultimately about the person of Jesus Christ. And conversely, if you get everything else right about this book, but you miss this, you will miss the entire point of the Bible, which is what's happening to these religious experts with fancy letters at the end of their names. They were experts in the book, but they missed the whole point because the Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus Christ. When you read the Bible, that should be your starting point. That should be the canopy over your study of this book. That it's ultimately about Jesus. Spirit of the living God, help me to see the ways in which this book points me to a person named Jesus. Help me to see the face of Jesus in the pages of scripture. Help me to see him as the most supreme one. Help me to see him as the one who satisfies the deepest cravings of my soul. Help me to see the person of Jesus in the pages of this book. What we ought to grow most concerned with as we read the Bible is seeing and experiencing The supreme person of Jesus. If you have an agenda. Greater than that. When you read the Bible. Let me tell you something. You are reading the Bible unbiblically. Because the Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus. And you end up missing the author's intent in why he gave us this book. Ultimately to reveal the face and point us to the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Okay. If the Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus. That means it cannot ultimately be about you. Bible ain't about you. If I don't understand who the Bible is ultimately about, I will replace what this book is ultimately about with a variety of things. And we are just prone to start with ourselves. Bible ain't about you. You are not the starting point. You are not the ending point. You are not the focal point of the Bible. And I'm just warning you about this. Because I've heard so many of us, well-intended Christians, including myself, say things. to, Oh, you're going through a really difficult time. Well, read the Bible. It will cheer you right up. Just read it. You're going to find all kinds of verses about you that, that are going to just make you feel so much better. Huh? Feel better in 30 seconds or your money back. The Bible. Right? Um... If we start to believe that, we will read the Bible unbiblically and we'll put ourselves in the center of the Bible. And we'll pick it up to see what does the Bible have to say about me today. And we'll start to treat it like a therapy book designed to make us feel better about ourselves. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't have the power to cheer you up. It's a powerful book. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't have the power to break off of you the things that are oppressing you. The Bible, after all, is a weapon. It is a sword. I'm just saying it is ultimately about the person of Jesus, which, by the way, can I just give you guys some insider information? It is ultimately about the person of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate sword, who crushes your enemy and defeats the devil. And cheers up your soul. It's not the words on the pages. That rip apart the the kingdom of darkness. It's the person of whom they speak. In whose name darkness must flee. This book is about the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's not about science. I have no idea why I'm getting ready and I'm thinking about science. I have no idea why these different things popped in my head. But it's not about science. I don't know what you said, but amen to that. It's, it's, it's not a book designed to, to prove your seven-day creation narrative or your old earth theory. That's not what it's for. Now, I have very strong beliefs about creation and how long it took for God to create the world. And I happen to think that if you disagree with me, you are crazy. But your crazy beliefs about creation do not threaten what I think about this book. Because this book is not ultimately a science book. The Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus. If I'm wrong about my creation beliefs. It doesn't lessen the power of the word of God. Because the Bible is not primarily trying to prove a scientific position. If you start there. And and that's what you're treating the Bible as. You are going to miss the ultimate point. Um. Believe it or not, the Bible is not ultimately about morality. The Bible is not ultimately a guide for what's right and a guide for what's wrong. If you believe the Bible is a morality manual, you, you boy, you will risk beating people over the head with this book. Bible says that's wrong. Bible says that's wrong. The Bible says that's not right. Right here, it says it right here that what you're doing is wrong. Boom. And we'll go around policing people and telling them that the Bible says this is wrong. And the Bible says that is wrong. The Bible says this is wrong. By the way, you don't have time. There are 600 plus laws in the Bible. I'm just telling you, you don't have time to walk around. The Bible also says, by the way, I'm sorry, did your goat stray onto my property? The word of God doth say. but we're going to do that. Like the Bible says this and we'll start holding it over people's head. Like you've got to measure up and you're not measuring up to all of the laws and all of the regulations and all that the Bible says. And it's a moral manual. And you know what we're going to start doing? We're going to start insisting. We got to make sure that the Bible stays in this institution and we've got to make sure that the Bible stays in that institution because the Bible is a moral guide that keeps darkness at bay. (laughs) No. The Bible's not ultimately that the Bible speaks to what's right and wrong, yes, but ultimately this book is about the person of Jesus. The Bible's not ultimately about your conscience. I did some terrible things this week, but it's okay. I'm gonna go on a three-day bender of Bible reading to clean that guilty feeling from my conscience. Because I just know that when I read the Bible, God loves me more. He's happier with me. So I'm going to read the Bible and treat it like it's a big old bar of, of, of dove soap. And I'm just going to clean my conscience. And that's what you're going to do. If you feel like you're good with God, you leave the Bible just gaining dust on your coffee table. And when you feel bad, you pick it up because you did something wrong. And you're trying to earn your way back to God to clean your Conscience. No, the Bible is ultimately about the person of Jesus, and his followers should read it that way. Now, hear me out, y'all. Right and wrong morality matters immensely to a holy God, it matters immensely to. Holy God, But the Bible is not about morality. The Bible is ultimately about Jesus. The one who makes us righteous before a holy God. The Bible, boy, it reveals all of what's right and what's wrong and what's right and what's wrong and you know why? so that it can convince us i can't keep up with what's right and i can't keep up with with what what god expects of me i cannot live up to the standard the bible holds before me i wish there was somebody who could get it right for me that's a person his name is jesus If we are going to walk around with this book in our culture, we are telling people the Bible says this is right and the Bible says this is right. But guess what? You are never going to be able to cut what's right. But there is somebody who's willing to take your place and get it right for you. And he is a person. His name is Jesus. If you stop at morality, you've missed the point. The Ten Commandments were intended to to tell us like, white flag, we can't pull it off. So God would say, thank you for admitting that. I have just the person. Jesus, we don't get a clear conscience because we read the Bible. We get a clear conscience because if you read the Bible in the book of Hebrews, it tells us about Jesus who sprinkles our hearts with his blood and cleanses us from a guilty conscience. The cleansing of your conscience, that's a person and his name is Jesus. It's not a book. What the book does is point you to the person who cleanses you of a guilty conscience. I'm sure there is somebody in this space this morning who needs their conscience cleansed. And I'm here to announce to you that is found in the person of. Jesus Christ oh my goodness cheering up matters feeling better matters I'm feeling sad feeling happier matters of course that matters I'm not refuting that I'm just saying that's just not what the Bible ultimately is but you know what the Bible will do if you're feeling down and things seem super chaotic in your world you open the Bible and the Bible will remind you hey in this world you will have trouble But Jesus says, What? Take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Your heart rests and experiences peace, not in the pages, but in the person who's overcome the world. Even this is telling, Go to the person who's overcome the world. It is ultimately about. The person of Jesus, seven day creation or seven million year creation. I'm laughing at one of those theories because they're really dumb, but one of us is terribly wrong. But at the end of the day, we were in Colossians chapter one. Let's go back there because you got to see what it says about this. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. I love this. The son that's Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him, Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. I don't know if you knew that. You may have a crazy theory of how long it took, but at the end of the day, it's about the person for whom this world was created and through whom this world was created. It is ultimately about him. That's why your theory on creation does not rock me too much because this book is ultimately about the one all things were ultimately created for. Boy, the religious leaders in John chapter 5 knew the Bible thoroughly. They had volumes of it memorized like you would not believe. They understood what the words meant. They understood tone. They understood verbs. They understood context. They believed in it was inerrant and infallible. The word of God. They believed it was a source of all morality. And in fact, they walked around beating people over the head with it. They did all of those things. They believed what they believed very strongly about creation and how many days it took. They had all of those things down in their boxes. But they missed the whole point of the Bible because they missed the fact that it was all testifying and pointing to the person of Jesus Christ who was standing in front of them, offering them the life that they were obsessively looking for in its pages. Jesus is like, you are one step away. And yet you refuse to come to me of whom the scriptures speak so that you would experience the life that you are ultimately looking for. They were experts in the Bible and missed the point because the point is a person, y'all. And that's why as we head out of this series, I just pray that we would not miss the centrality of Jesus in all things and the centrality of Jesus Christ in his Word. My prayer is that as we study the scriptures, we would do so diligently, but unlike these Pharisees, that when we are done, we will find ourselves standing a little closer to the person of Jesus. We will find ourselves falling at the feet of Jesus. We'll find ourselves holding him as the supreme one in our lives and finding in him the satisfaction that our souls ultimately long for. This is a book that reveals the person of Jesus. That's why we want to be a church that's obsessed with this book, but it's because of who it reveals and who it points us to because ultimately that's who we are after. And we said this a few weeks ago. You cannot say, man, I'm after Jesus, but I'm not about his word. No, his word is designed to point us to his person. Nor can we say we are about his word, but don't end up at the feet of Jesus, just enamored with him and finding in him the life our souls long for. This to me is part of why I believe the church is oftentimes very biblically biblically literate. But yet, if you took a survey and said, tell me about the depth of satisfaction that your soul is experiencing, you would find a famine because I think we've stopped short of the fact that this Bible is pointing us to a person. And we want to let it take us all the way to his feet and find in him fullness of life. If the religious leaders would just have taken him up or believed him when he told them This whole thing y'all know so well, it's been talking about me the whole time. Moses and the Exodus, come on. Ultimately, this is about me. This is ultimately foreshadowing me because my body would be split so that people who've been held captive would walk into freedom out of their chains. I'm just telling y'all, this is ultimately about me. Even Ruth and Boaz, that kinsman redeemer who found this vulnerable, helpless widow and gave protection to her, gave provision for her, took her in this stud from Bethlehem, who would eventually become one of the grandparents of David in the line of Jesus. This is all foreshadowing and pointing to the person of jesus it doesn't mean it's not literal and doesn't have its meaning but jesus is saying "Now listen this is pointing in my direction come on abraham and isaac come on somebody it's jesus it's foreshadowing him where god the father tells abraham whoa stop Do not sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love on this mountain. I will provide. This is God telling Abraham, don't do it. Let me. I'll sacrifice my son on this very mountain. For the redemption of the world. Come on, Isaac was a person, Abraham was a person, a man of faith. But ultimately, even these stories are pointing and foreshadowing the person of Jesus Christ. Come on, David and Goliath, that's a good one. This giant is tormenting God's people. He has them living in utter fear until this unexpected dude shows up. And does the most unexpected thing, knocks this guy out and brings great relief to his people i love what hebrews says by the way about jesus this is chapter 2 verse 14 check this out since the children have flesh and blood he jesus he shared in the humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that's the devil you've been defeated satan verse 15 and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. I don't know if you knew that, but we are fearful of death. I don't have to convince you of that. It stands as this giant just tormenting us. And I love this. It's like, yeah, Jesus came and he was like, boop. You will not hold my people in fear anymore. And he set them Free. Now you can live. Free of fear. Now your soul can start to experience fullness of life. Because often what interrupts the full experience of life is the constant fears we feel. It's about Jesus. Leviticus is definitely about Jesus. It's definitely foreshadowing Jesus. And uh, this sacrifice for that sin. And then kill this? No, no, not that animal. That one. No, 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 no. Its wings are funky. Get a better one. Yeah. Okay. Good. That one. Now sacrifice that one. Uh, for that thing and sacrifice this thing. Burnt offering? No. A uh, grain offering? No, no, no. It's the different offering. This one is the the, the 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 wave offering. You know. And then kill that thing for this thing. And then um, okay. Now we're good. Oh, I messed up again. Okay, well then kill another one and let's sacrifice some more to take care of our sins. And then make some more sacrifices. But the sacrifice has to be done just so. But we're exhausted from all of these sacrifices for all of the messes we keep making. I know. Are you ready? Because I'm about to send you the ultimate sacrifice who will be given once for all, and now there is no longer a need for sacrifice. Read the book of Leviticus just so you can feel exhausted and be like, We need a better sacrifice than this. And Jesus is like, Yeah, I was prepping y'all for me. How sad for the Pharisees to know all of the rules and experience none of the relief in the person who's saying, You can live, I'll take care of the sacrifices. And I'll do it once for all. And then there's all kinds of passages that I don't know what that has to do with Jesus. I don't know. And by the way, when you read the Bible, you are not trying to make connections. Um, If we had time, we'll talk about another principle, which is the New Testament interprets the old. So there are things I know we're talking about Jesus, because when I get to the New Testament, I'm like, oh, oh, I've that psalm was talking about jesus i had no idea that psalm was, what i didn't know that so i'm just encouraging you don't try and go into the old testament and pick a verse let me i'll randomly turn to one no that's a good one because that's definitely about jesus let me, turn, let me turn to a different one um jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships oh like jesus walked on water and then he got into a ship one time like no Just read it. That's not what you're trying to do. It's more that you understand this book is somehow ultimately about the person of Jesus Christ. So spirit of the living God, open my eyes and show me the face of Jesus in the pages of this book. In a way that drives me to fall at his feet and find in him fullness of life and freedom. We ultimately wanted to drive us to his person. Church, it's possible for us to know the Bible and understand its content, which is what we want to do as a church. But we do not want to stop short of the person of Jesus who the Bible points us to. May we be a church that's obsessed with the Bible because we're obsessed with more and more of the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Um, man, we are, are going to have questions um, up on the screen. Or if you're watching remotely, if you're part of our emailing um system, then you are going to receive questions because we want us to continue these conversations beyond Sunday morning so that we can apply these things to our lives because that's what disciples do. But before we step out of this room and this space, we want to always make sure that we're a people who are responding to what the spirit is saying for us to do right now. And so I don't know what the spirit may be whispering in your ear. I don't know. Maybe for some of us, we realize I have been running for years and years and years longing to find satisfaction in all of the wrong places. And it's left me emptier than I was before. Can I just tell you the invitation for life? abundant is on the table. Jesus is in this space, in this room, and is holding life out to you if you would only come and receive it. Maybe for some of you, you're realizing I've messed up so bad and my conscience is all kind of messed up. Can I tell you there's an invitation on the table for you to come and experience forgiveness that doesn't just relieve you of the burden of sin, but it cleanses you from a guilty... Conscience. I don't know if for some of you, this is the day of new beginning for you to start this life of fullness and freedom and forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. But what I'm saying is don't walk out of this space without responding to what it is the spirit is inviting you to do. Some of you, you may need healing in your body or healing in your marriage. Or there's something going on in in the financial world. Or you just a feeling like life is chaotic and it's out of order. And and the Spirit of God seems to be inviting me back to the person of Jesus to just say, You have overcome the world. Help me to believe you for that. Don't leave this space without doing whatever the Spirit might be whispering in your ear. So I'm going to ask elders to come to... The front and um, there's some of you I know who are part of of a prayer team here at Mission Point. And if you want to come to the front to let's pray with folks who may be responding to what the spirit is doing. But I'm begging you do not let self-consciousness do not let pride do not let anything stand in the way of what the spirit might be inviting you to do before you walk out. So, Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Jesus, we worship you in this space. You are supreme and we declare that without reservation. It is ultimately about you. Our lives are ultimately about you. Help us to live that way. Thank you for your word which reveals you to us. Help us to see your face over and over again. Help us to see your work of redemption over and over again. And then help us to come to you, Jesus, for life and fullness and joy and freedom. And thank you for the day when sin will be fully removed and we will be in your presence forever to continue to enjoy the fullness of life that's available in you. Spirit of God, I pray that you would remove any inhibition or obstacles for anyone who needs to do business with you, even now. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen.